Dear Heavenly Father, I am so blessed, Father, to be a part of a church that uh, puts your truth front and center and uh, worships in spirit as you've commanded us to do. I thank you, Father, that we're not trapped by our rituals and we're not uh, beholden to a style of worship or to a specific form that is not directed by your spirit. But I'm also thankful, Father, that we give respect and proper attention to order, to participation by the broader body of Christ that you've assembled here. These are the things, Father, that make this uh, place what it is for us, a place of renewed faith and regeneration, encouragement, edification, so that you're building us up in your likeness. I was thankful this morning, Father, for the Sunday school hour we had when we opened your word and allowed hearts to reveal what you had shown them and to, and to just think through the meaning of these things. This is, um, this is what it means, Father, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you've been doing that work here for so long. You continue to do that faithfully every week. We thank you for that and for the privilege that it is to gather in a place that puts these things first. And, Father, as well, as we listen to what we have in, this, in the Word this morning as you prepared it for us and we consider what it's asking of us, I ask, Father, that we would that we'd take it to heart. We can all hear the word, Father. The question is, will we do it? I pray that you give us a heart to do is what we hear, to do all that we hear. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Robinson was an English clergyman, and he lived in the 18th century. You may not know his name, but he was not only a gifted pastor and teacher, but he was also a highly gifted poet, and he wrote hymns. But there was a point in his life after many years in pulpit ministry when his faith began to drift and he eventually left the ministry and he finished off the latter part of his life living in France, indulging himself in sin. And I guess if you really want to live a life of sin, France is a good place to go, I'm told. And it came about one night while he was in Paris, he was riding in a carriage with a woman who was a Parisian socialite and she'd recently come to know the Lord, converting to Christianity. And as they're riding in the carriage, she was reading a book of poetry, and she asked his opinion of what she was reading. And this is what she read to him. Come thou font of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy never failing, call for hymns of loudest praise. When she looked up from reading the poem, she noticed that Robinson was crying, sitting next to her. And she said, well, what do you think of it? And he says, what do I think of it? In his broken voice, he said, I wrote that. But now, he says, I've drifted away and I can't find my way back. And the woman replied gently, well, but don't you see? It's right here written in that third line of your poem, streams of mercy never ceasing. Those streams are flowing here tonight in Paris, she said. And in that night, Robinson is said to have recommitted his life to Christ and found his way back into ministry. And I think his example is a good one for how Christians fall away. When we talk about falling away and we apply it in a Christian context, I think his example fits the mold. If we concede to disappointment or to discouragement or if we submit to the desires of our flesh, we can slip back into a life that's ruled by our flesh. And it looks a lot like what happened to Robinson, I guess. Now, our faith is still intact when that happens. We're not less Christian, so to speak, because our knowledge of Christ as Lord and Savior never leaves us. But in our behavior, we can depart from a walk with the Lord, of living up to the commands of Christ. We're departing from a life of obedience to Christ, though we can never be separated from the love of Christ. 
But as the Bible says, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And God was certainly kind to give Robinson that opportunity to repent and return. He had never left Robinson, even though Robinson had tried to run away. And that's the security we all share in Christ. That even when we are faithless, yet he remains faithful to us. But if you move the conversation of falling away out of the context of the believer and you move it into the context of an unbeliever, and that may seem a bit odd at first, falling away for someone who was never there to begin with. But nonetheless, there is a form of falling away that is possible for the unbeliever. But in their situation, there is no promised rescue. When an unbeliever is exposed to the truth, and perhaps they consider it for a time in some way, but then yet still fall away during a time of testing, there is no tether holding them to the Lord because they've never come to know him truly because they have no relationship with him. Perhaps they'll eventually come to embrace him in some way at some point in time, Lord permitting, but unless and until they come to a saving knowledge of the truth of the gospel, their temporary interest in Christ or of Christianity buys them absolutely nothing. That's why this writer in Hebrews, that's why he has said that becoming a partaker or in Greek, Metakos, or companion is the way you might translate that word. To become a companion with Christ will lead to a holding fast our confidence until the end. That is the definition of being a true believer. And the central concern for this writer and the second warning we're now looking at is that there are sometimes among us in the church those who have not truly embraced Christ as Lord. And yet, for whatever reason, they continue to congregate with us. For their sake, the writers told us that we should encourage one another, seeking to build everyone up, ultimately to lead everyone to a saving knowledge of Christ, to take nothing for granted and to never stop that process of continually encouraging one another in the Lord. But he says that the sin of unbelief continues. It has a hardening effect on a heart. Time, in other words, runs out. And that's why the writer continues to emphasize, if you hear today, do not harden your heart. Take advantage of the opportunity. For if someone fails to hear the Lord's voice, there is a certain outcome awaiting them at the end. And we know exactly what that is. And that leads to the consequence of the warning. That begins at the end here of chapter 3. That's where we are now in this process of examining the second warning to the church. It's a consequence if we don't act out in the way the writer has instructed the church to act. If we're not mindful of this possibility amongst us, and if we're not doing everything we can to encourage everyone we know to come into the faith that saves. He says there is a consequence. He begins that in verse 14. He says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So now the writer wants to offer us an example, an example of how this process might work. And to this particular church, this Jewish church in his day, he uses an example from their own past, from the nation of Israel. And he's illustrating both the possibility and the seriousness of having some within the group who fail to believe. 
So, and he returns to this experience of the Israelites. We've been looking at this from last week, remember? And he uses a series of questions, very interesting series of questions. What he's doing with these questions is he's causing his audience, you and I, to consider the consequences of unbelief in our midst. The questions are all focused on one answer, who? In all cases, the answer to these questions revolve around who is it that has seen this before and what came of their experience? First, he says, well, who was it that provoked God when they had heard? Well, of course, those he's speaking of here are the Israelites. Those are the ones who heard God's call through Moses initially and through the the work of God's miraculous powers in the desert and ultimately through a covenant in which they heard the word of God given to them through Moses, delivered by angels, we're told. The second question. All right. Well, who was God angry with for 40 years? Well, it's it's the same people. So same people who heard all those things, saw all those things. Wait a minute. They're the ones who got in trouble. They angered God in their sin, we're told. They disobeyed the word that they heard time and time again, a total of 10 times before God brought judgment upon them. And in the course of all of that disobedience, we've already concluded they were demonstrating a lack of faith in that word. He says, I'll care for you. They said, we don't believe it. He says, you'll have water. They said, we're going to die of dehydration. He said, we'll give you food. They said, this is not good enough. He said, the land that you're about to enter will be wonderful. And they said, we don't believe it. Word after word after word, they did not have faith in. And then the third question, he says, finally, well, then who was it who was denied entrance into that promised land? And again, the answer, that very same generation of Israel who never, he says, entered the Lord's rest because of their disobedience. Now, his point is pretty obvious, isn't it? His point is that those who began the journey with Moses didn't make it to the destination. They started, but they didn't finish. A start doesn't guarantee a finish. Not if it doesn't start in the right way. Not if you start without the requisite faith that any journey of true knowledge of God must begin with. And in this case, in the very beginning and throughout their experience, they did nothing but provoke God through their unbelief. In the end, it says they were denied entrance into the very land God promised to Israel to Abraham's descendants because of their unbelief. Now, that raises an interesting question. How could God deny something to Israel that he's promised them? How does that work? Does that mean God is not good at his promises, that he's not trustworthy? Well, Paul explains how to understand this in Romans chapter nine, Romans nine, six through eight. Paul wrote this. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Speaking of delivering promises to Israel. He said, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. In other words, the promises of God are obtained through faith the faith that Abraham displayed. And through our faith, we then have the opportunity to receive what God has made available. But merely being associated with the people of the promise, merely having some physical ancestry, those things don't give you the promises. Not in Israel's day, not in our day. Christianity doesn't rub off. In the case of that generation, their unbelief in God's promises of all the good things he had promised to give them, the land and the like, all of that was removed from their opportunity because of unbelief. They could not obtain it. The writer says the nation was not able to enter because of unbelief. Just because they attached themselves to Moses, just because they heard the word that had been proclaimed through him, just because they saw all those wondrous displays, none of that was good enough on its own to guarantee entrance into the promised land. What was the test? The test was faith. 
belief in God's promises. And friends, things have not changed today. Not on this issue, not in this respect. And the writer points that out in verse 1 of chapter 4. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, let us, not them, let us fear. If, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The writer says we should tremble at the thought that there might be some among us who possess this same kind of evil, unbelieving heart that was evident in that generation of Israel. We aren't merely trembling for their sake, by the way. This isn't him saying, you know, you ought to be afraid for them because of what they're likely to face at their death. That's true, too, of course. But remember, the consequences of having some in the group who disobeyed, those consequences fell on the whole of the group of Israel that wandered in the desert during that time. Moses wandered as well. Joshua wandered as well. Caleb wandered as well for 40 years. When the unbelieving element in a group disobeys God, the Lord may bring or choose to bring that entire group under some kind of discipline or judgment. So we should be concerned if our congregations are long-term refuges for unbelievers. If we allow our church to become somewhere where people can visit and inquire and listen to the word and consider what they hear, yet remain in their unbelief and be comfortable in that unbelief, we risk something in that process. We don't want our gathering to be unreceptive. We don't want our gathering to be unwelcoming. That should be obvious. But our gathering cannot be a comfortable place for an unbeliever to hang out indefinitely. For if we do that, the writer says we have something to fear. The word of God is intended, when it's preached properly, to create a response in the hearts of those who hear it, such that they will either fall on their knees in repentance for their sin and to embrace the mercy God offers in Christ, or they will run away. They will be literally repelled by what the Bible is saying. They will either fall down or fall away, but there should be no room in the preaching of God's word for an unbeliever to find comfort in the words of Scripture without changing their heart. That should not be possible. That is something we cannot permit, for to do so is to risk angering the Lord. And friends, what it also implies, if we were able to make such a circumstance happen, it would imply that we have departed from the very mission of the church at some level, that we are not meeting our purpose in being. Friends, we're here to be light, salt, and truth to the world. We're not supposed to give comfort to the enemy in that sense. We're supposed to welcome them in so they can know the truth and become children of God. And not just welcoming them into the building, obviously. And so if we can create a comfortable environment for an unbeliever that never causes them to question who they are, then it suggests we're not presenting the word of God in a true and forthright manner. It means we've created an environment where the world can feel comfortable. Some churches have made that mistake. Labeling their approach as seeker friendly, which is a, the term of, of vogue today. And although I'm sure they do what they do with the best of intentions, nevertheless, they're paving a road to destruction through those good intentions. They have designed an experience that appeals to unbelievers in the hope that bringing them into the gathering will have a positive impact over time. But as I said, rubbing elbows with believers does not by itself bring saving faith to an unbeliever. 
If hanging around the people of God or or if even just experiencing God himself in some direct revelation, if that itself was enough to bring saving faith, then how do you explain the Israelites in the desert? They were hanging around Moses. They saw stuff none of us have ever seen. How do we explain their lack of faith then? Faith in God, or as we would say today, Christianity, does not rub off. It does not enter your heart the way air enters your lungs. You don't absorb it. You don't learn it through a socialization process. Perhaps in the early stages of building someone's interest in the faith, a socialization process can be useful to building a bridge and establishing a relationship. We all understand that. But sooner or later, if someone is going to come to faith in Christ, someone has to present them with the message of the gospel from the testimony of the pages of the Bible. And that message is always the same. Starting with sin, moving to Christ and ending with the need of confession. In whatever words we may choose to use, that's the message of the gospel. That's what this writer has been pointing out throughout this example of Israel in the desert. In verse two, in the verses I read, the writer says those who provoked God, they were denied rest. They rubbed elbows with Moses. They rubbed elbows with the rest of the Israelites. They walked the same walk. They heard the same word, but it did not profit them because it was not united with faith in their heart. And the Greek word for united there could also be translated mixed together, mixed together, that it was taken in and became a part of who they were. They weren't experiencing what they encountered through a lens of faith. They were experiencing it only in a fleshly sense, which did them no good. And I think that should be our concern as well, that we may have friendships and neighbors and work associates who we maintain comfortable relationships with at the expense of our witness Because we value the relationship we have in this world with them more than the prospect of them having a relationship with Christ in eternity. At some point, you have to ask yourself why we're still here on earth. Our concern should be that we cannot afford to give someone safe harbor who lacks faith in the living God. We can't help them feel good about where they are if they're not where they need to be. No one is profiting when we do that. They don't profit without faith because without faith it's impossible to please God. And friends, you and I don't profit because we're not serving the purpose of the church. We're not pleasing the Lord, which means potentially we're forfeiting reward. No one's profiting in this arrangement. It just feels good temporarily. And the writer has been emphasizing in this whole warning that the stakes for those who provoke the Lord in disobedience are very high. The stakes are high. He's already described the penalty for unbelief here as not entering the rest of God. Now, we know for those in the desert, he's speaking literally about their ability to walk into the promised land in Canaan that had been promised to the people. But I want you to notice this writer at the beginning of chapter four. He's indicated that that penalty can still be experienced today by those who reject Christ. You notice in verse one, look, he says the promise of entering the Lord's rest still remains today. Now, how can that be? How can the penalty for failing to believe be the same today as it was in the time of Moses if we're only speaking about their ability to physically walk into Canaan? That doesn't make any sense anymore. After all, the Israelites did eventually enter the promised land under Joshua, did they not? So what exactly does the writer mean when he says those who remain disobedient in unbelief are still today in jeopardy of being denied entry into his rest? It would seem like that penalty is already passed now that everyone's walked into the land, right? Israel's moved in. Well, the writer goes on to explain that he hasn't been talking about the physical land. 
He's been using that rather as a metaphor for something much more important. Look what he says in verses 3 through 10. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Well, therefore, since it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. This passage will give you a headache. But this is an amazingly simple and profound proof that the writer just offered. And it sets straight our theology, at least in a couple of areas, not the least of which is our view of the Sabbath day is corrected through this passage from, from where it may be in some cases. Look, Let's go through it now. He says in verse 3, the writer defines what he has meant from the beginning as he says entering rest. He's trying to get to the point now of what does he mean when he says enters rest. And he's using the Israelites as an example, as a negative example in this case. Using them, he demonstrates that those who have believed in God's promises are those who enter God's rest. Not just those who were in the desert, but you and I today. When you believe in Christ, you enter God's rest. And to show you what he means, he quotes first from Psalms 95 again, that one we studied last week. And in that psalm, the Lord himself spoke to Israel through the psalm, and he equated their disobedience with forfeiting rest forfeiting the uh, opportunity to enter rest. And the writer wants you to understand God wasn't just speaking about Canaan. He wasn't speaking about their time of physically walking into the land. He speaks about something more important than that. And now he uses the series of comments here from the Old Testament to show you what God really means when he says you will be denied rest if you show unbelief or have unbelief. And starting in verse 4, here's the proofs. First, you notice where he begins? The creation account from Genesis. And as you all remember, God took off the seventh day after he created in the first six and he called it a day of rest. And as you remember, when we studied Genesis, oh, so long ago, when God says he rested on the seventh day, it means he ceased from the creative work that he had been engaged in. It does not mean he took a nap. It doesn't mean he laid down because he was pooped. It means that he worked. Now, on one day, he ceased from his work. And in that sense, he was resting But then we also understand he has always been at rest since then. He has never gone back to working again in the creative process. Six days is all he needed. He was finished at the end of six days. So although he said he rested for a day, Scripture goes on to say, after that day, he stayed at rest. He never picked up again. He's never restarted. And yet, thousands of years later, the Lord declared that disobedient Israel would not enter into his rest. So the rest that the Lord begun at the end of creation is a rest that is everlasting, continuing to this point. How is it that you and I don't enter into his rest? What could it possibly mean to not enter into a rest that is already happening and perpetual? That is God ceasing from his work. It means we're not entering into his presence. We're not joining him in his restful place. 
And that's the meaning of the threat here. Those who are disobedient or unbelieving were denied entrance into the Lord's presence in heaven. And that's the risk that still exists for anyone who is disobedient today. Therefore, the writer says, an opportunity remains for some, notice the word some, not all, there's an opportunity for some to enter into the Lord's rest, because not all do enter, because not all believe. But by faith, those who believe will enter into his rest, just like some of those in the desert entered into the land and the rest were left to die in the desert. Likewise, some will enter into his rest in the eternal sense, into the salvitic sense. Others will not. And he says, the writer says, we've had good news preached to us. So today. But just remember, folks, hearing it without believing it is not enough. Being a part of a group, showing up once in a while, doing your part on Sundays doesn't get you into heaven. Faith does and only faith. Those other things should be the result of your faith. And the writer proves in verses seven through nine that the rest was a euphemism for entering into his presence, into salvation. Look what he says. I love this part of the proof. I guess there's a lawyer deep inside of me. And I love when I see this kind of an argument made. Don't hold that against me, by the way. First, he says the writer quotes here from Psalms again. That's when he mentions David. He says David wrote so long afterward. What he's saying is David wrote that psalm, Psalm 95. So think of it like a timeline, like an event timeline. Here we are in time and Israel was in the desert and they were wandering and they were denied entry into rest. That is Canaan. Then we go a few hundred years and David writes a psalm and he says, today, if you hear his voice, enter his rest. Well, by the time David wrote those words, Israel was already in the land. So if rest was nothing more than entering the land, why would David be saying years later, you still have a rest you need to enter? It stands to reason he must have been talking about something bigger than just entering the land. For if it was only the land, this statement wouldn't have made any sense by the time David wrote it. That's why the writer says Joshua had already given him rest in the physical sense. David would have had no reason to say what he said if that was all there was to it. So the writer says, so we see today there is still a rest, a Sabbath rest available to God's people. There is still something being offered even now for those who believe. Verse 9, we must still enter a Sabbath rest. The concept he is expressing here is so meaningful. He's saying that the word rest in the Bible is a word that God uses to describe entering salvation by faith. And it is by his work that that rest is made available. We don't earn rest. We didn't work to get that rest. It was his work the creative work in the first six days and, speaking of our salvation, the work of Christ. Christ worked to live a perfect life. Christ worked to die on the cross for our behalf. Christ then entered the Father's rest, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the goal, to enter into that world of rest. You get there, not by your own works, but by faith in the work God has already done. And with His work, we can gain His rest. That's what the Sabbath is all about. The Sabbath rest, as you see it defined here, is entering into salvation through Christ. The Sabbath was given as a one day rest to Israel and only Israel to picture the Sabbath you gain eternally through Christ. So that by faith in Christ now, I enter a perpetual rest such that every day is my Sabbath. I have not just one day, I have seven. I am no longer working to earn my salvation. I'm now free to rest in his work 
perpetually. And in so doing, Christ fulfilled the law with regard to the Sabbath by his death on the cross. That's why as Christians, we don't have an obligation to observe a Sabbath day particularly. We can rest a day a week if we want. We can rest two days a week if we want. Most of us rest even more than that if you think about it. But the truth of spiritual rest is achieved in Christ alone. And that means that the land in Canaan was always to be a picture of that rest. When the nation of Israel disobeyed in the desert, they were demonstrating a lack of saving faith. And so the Lord denied them entrance into the physical land as a demonstration of his displeasure with them. But in the process, he also created a picture for what unbelief leads to. It leads to a denial of rest spiritually. It prevents us from entering God's presence, his salvation. What will be left if we have unbelief? We will have to live on the basis of our own work rather than resting in God's. And friends, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. If you want to go to your judgment moment, resting on your own work, I can tell you what the result's going to be. It will not be one you agree with or that you'll be pleased with. Everyone should be seeking to enter the Lord's presence. That's why David says, as long as today is still called today, as long as there's still an opportunity to know the Lord, don't let the opportunity pass by. Confess Christ, know him in faith, and enter that rest. And the writer says in verse 10 that the one who has entered the Lord's rest is the one who has rested from his own works. Proving that we're talking here once again about salvation. You and I have entered that rest. Look at verse 11. The writer says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The Greek word there for diligent it just means make every effort, make every effort. We collectively make every effort to bring everyone with us into the rest of the Lord. And we have to hear it in that plural sense, by the way, because you can make a mistake in, in reading this verse and think that somehow we have to be diligent towards our own salvation. That's not what he's saying. Not if you're thinking that that work is a way of reaching salvation. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying to the group, let us collectively be diligent to ensure that as a community, we enter that rest each individually. How can I be diligent to your benefit in that respect? Well, work as hard as I can or as you can to make sure everyone in the church knows the Lord. And then outside the walls of this church, everyone we encounter or have a relationship with the same. As the writer said earlier, let encourage, let's encourage everyone to remember the Lord's kindness and his mercy in the face of Christ. Always speak the gospel, expecting a response. I remember a great story about Charles Spurgeon and a young preacher. And the preacher came up to Spurgeon and, and was lamenting the fact that he was not seeing much response from the gospel when he would preach it in his church. And Spurgeon said, well, do you expect every time you preach the gospel that you're going to have a convert? And the pastor said, well, I, I guess not. And Spurgeon said, well, that's your problem. That's our problem. Our problem is we set expectations so low that we figure it's perfunctory. Oh, it's time for the altar call. Let's just get it out of the way. I haven't done this in a while. Let's try it now. See if anybody responds. I think the expectation has to be exactly the opposite. Encourage everyone as long as today is today to the youngest, to the oldest. I assure you, just based on age alone, there's somebody in here that doesn't know the Lord. Not yet. Hopefully all will one day. And I understand it's in his timing. But see, that's the point. If you're doing it consistently and continually as a function of who you are, not as some kind of mechanical obligation you feel you have, then when the time comes along, it's going to be the right moment for both of us. In other words, being ready at all times to present the gospel in a kind, gentle, simple way, not in a, a mechanical way, 
gives the best opportunity for God to work. And we understand his sovereignty in this process. We're not denying that. But we're also understanding our role as he's appointed. Solicit testimonies from people. Encourage believers to be baptized. Challenge those who seem to have a statement of faith that's not backed up by a life of faith. In helpful ways, seek out where there are those refuges amongst us for those who are playing a part they don't actually agree with. Not to make somebody feel they have to flee us unnecessarily, but so that no one would fall through the cracks. And then I'd say, in contrast to my little story about Spurgeon, let's also be realistic in our expectations. Not everyone is going to be willing to make the trip with us. Some will remain disobedient. Some will remain unrepentant. Some will remain unbelieving. What are we to do with those? Well, the one thing you cannot do is find a way to make them feel comfortable in their unbelief. You can't make unity a higher priority than truth. You can't soften the gospel or make excuses for lack of repentance. You can't make their participation in the congregation a higher goal than their partaking of Christ. Let's not allow anyone to follow the example of the disobedient Israelites in the desert, a people who saw miraculous things around them and heard marvelous words from God, and yet they turned away and they followed their flesh in the end. Speaking for myself, I know the warnings we're going to get to much later in this book from Hebrews 13 about what a pastor's obligation is to guard over the flock and the fact that there will be an accounting for me, for the souls entrusted to me. That keeps me awake some nights. People say, don't you want a bigger church? And I think of that verse. And I say, no, I'm not very good with the group I've got. How can I handle anything more? But I, for one, speaking for myself, I don't want to end up on the judgment day in front of Christ and held to account for scores of people that I looked at every Sunday. And I thought, I'm glad they're here. And it never dawned on me that they had fallen through the cracks, that they were just attending. They weren't worshiping. So. That's a a community responsibility, not just mine, but it's something we should all have on our hearts. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for the word and its reminder to us this morning that, that even as we smile and shake hands and spend time with one another, our hearts are hard to see sometimes. And there may be those amongst us who continue to operate in unbelief. They trust in themselves or they trust in fate, or they give no thought at all to what may happen at the end of their life, but whatever reason, for whatever reason, they harbor this disobedient, unrepentant heart and, Father, that displeases you. And yet they're here, perhaps. And if so, Father, then today is still today. And so I ask, Lord, that by the preaching of your word, by the power of your spirit, a heart might change whether it be one that is old and has heard this a million times or one that is new and is only hearing it for the first time. Neither is out of your reach, and I pray, Father, that your reach would be enough this morning. And I ask, Father, that in the weeks to come, in the months to come, as we continue to congregate and as new faces join us from time to time, I pray, Father, that we would always approach each one in the same way, with a heart that welcomes and loves them for who they are and desires to minister to them in whatever way you pr- uh, provide. But at the same time, Father, is, is asking the right questions in the right way and testifying to the truth of the gospel in a continual way so that the heart that walks in would be changed if, if that's your will. And not just here, Father. It's easy to think of church as a place rather than an identity. And I ask, Father, that our 
concerns would go outside this building with us and we would think soberly about those we run into every day. How many of them, Father, have we given refuge to in their unbelief? Made excuses with them for why they believe the way they do or why they reject what we believe. And, Father, I pray that we'd have some courage where we need it and wisdom. Let us speak exactly what you would speak if Jesus were standing in front of them. And, Father, with that, may we see a a harvest. For it encourages us, Father, when we see that. Thank you, Lord, for this morning again, for the reminders that we heard and, and for the challenge it presents. We can do all things, Father, through your Lord's work in our hearts. And we ask, Father, we'd be useful to you for that work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.